You're listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. I'm your host, Andy Clark. In this podcast series, we're trying to better understand the link between structural discrimination and statelessness in the world today. We're looking at different themes, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. In the series, we speak to a diverse range of experts from around the world. In this episode, we look at colonialism and its impact on statelessness. When you think about the world's nearly 200 states now, over 80% are post-colonial. When you look at landlocked states or you look at states that share boundaries with somebody else, the chances are that that boundary was drawn by somebody other than the, the, the local communities there. Hi, my name is Joshua Castellino. I'm Executive Director of Minority Rights Group International and Professor of International and Comparative Law at Derby University. Uh, At Minority Rights Group International, we work with 150 partner organizations all around the globe, and we operate out of London, Budapest and Kampala, with a permanent presence also in Geneva and Brussels. But the fact that all these, uh, you know, the causes of statelessness that exist today were perpetuated by the colonial powers to their own benefits. So I think a lot has to be sort of traced back to colonialism. Hi, Andy. I'm Subin Momi. I'm currently based in Nepal. Um, I am a human rights lawyer and researcher. I am currently working as the executive director at Nationality for All, or NFA. NFA is a regional organization working on uh, statelessness and right to nationality in the Asia-Pacific region. The history of colonialism and its impact on statelessness is obviously, it's a huge topic. So to set up our conversation, perhaps you can both give us a brief example, which we can unpack further up in the podcast of what we're talking about. Um, Joshua, let me turn to you first. Yes, Andy, thank you very much. Uh, Colonialism and statelessness. Well, I mean, the state itself is a colonial product. So all across the world, lines were drawn on maps, which essentially became states. Uh, These states had no real basis in the governance system of of local indigenous environments. And so when colonial powers left and decolonization took place, decolonization took place based on those lines. The context is huge because essentially what it did is it determined who was in and who was out. And this is a classic example you see in Myanmar with the Rohingya. And Subin, let me turn to you. You know, this takes me back to grad school when we would, you know, any conversation would lead to blaming colonization for everything. And I can probably safely say that statelessness also has its roots in colonization, colonialism. And I will take the example of the Madeshis in Nepal, even though Nepal was never formally colonized, but when Britain colonized India and started setting up the borders, then the fluid movement between Nepali nationals and, and Indian nationals stopped. And but even though the cultural practices persisted and cross-border marriages still continue to do so, the largest you know stateless group in Nepal, unsurprisingly, uh, is the Madeshi group because of their cross-border marriages with the Indian nationals. And a lot of that has to do with the colonial rule in India. Is it possible for us to, to quantify the impact of colonialism on statelessness today? It might be a tricky question to answer, but Subin, I mean, is it uh, possible to, to quantify the impact of that? Um, obviously, we probably can't get a 
uh, a proper number. But I mean, if I were to, uh, I mean, I, I think, like I said before, everything can be sort of traced back to colonialism. So I probably would say 100%, but there were all, uh, you know, already existing patriarchal norms before colonization that is, has led to gender discriminatory nationality laws. There were already existing sort of ethnically discriminatory laws as well. Um, and also I think, like Joshua mentioned, the concept of state and statehood, citizenship, nationality, all of that came after colonization and, and how colonial powers formalized that. So I don't, can't give you an exact number, but the fact that all these, the causes of statelessness that exist today were perpetuated by the colonial powers to their own benefits. So I think a lot has to be traced back to colonial powers. And Joshua, maybe you can unpack the example you gave us at the top a little bit more and uh, talk about the impact of colonialism and its legacy that we're still seeing today. Yeah, you know, to, to answer your question in terms of uh, trying to, in some way, I guess, quantify this. When you think about the world's nearly 200 states now, over 80% are post-colonial. And that means that essentially many of these identities take out the island states because clearly they were existing entities and perhaps existing entities uh, that were governed from those islands. But when you look at landlocked states or you look at states that share boundaries with somebody else, the chances are that that boundary was drawn by somebody other than the, the, the local communities there. And then depending on where you fell, on which side of the boundary you fell, you were left to the, I guess, the, 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 the preferences of the emerging power there as to whether they'd recognize you. Now, by and large, this has, had not, would not have been a problem if these entities came in and took a multicultural or a diverse view of who it was that lived within those boundaries. But the moment you got into identity politics, suddenly it mattered whether you belonged and you didn't belong. And it became particularly problematic if you had a kin community on the other side of that boundary. So the Rohingya is a good example of that, but this is also true in Assam, where the accusation is that these people are not Assamese, they are Bangla. But actually they may well be Bengali speaking, but actually Bengal, West Bengal itself is divided between India and Bangladesh. So this argument essentially breaks down on the fact that there is an identity that's preferred. And if you don't fall into part of that identity, then you always run the risk of the majority population deciding, you know what, you don't belong. But let's not just talk about it in a post-colonial context, because it's very much happening in Europe too. It's happening with Europe's boundaries. It's happening with the extent to which populations are being turned away from fortress Europe. And determinations are being made about who belongs and who doesn't belong, calling on very, very old uh, xenophobic ideas of nationalism. Yeah, that belonging and not belonging, that really does also come down to the colonialist uh, heritage, as you, as you say. Um, and so I'm interested to, uh, to hear a bit more about the example you gave us, Subin, at the top of the podcast. Uh, you know, how is it playing into uh, what you're seeing in, in Nepal today from that example, although not strictly colonialist history, as you mentioned, but still the feeling of belonging and not belonging. How is that playing out? So even now, you know, the, the nationalist um, parties and, and which is the, the majority of the ruling parties and majority of the opposition parties as well, um, their outlook towards the Madeshi community uh, is extremely xenophobic uh, because they share um, cultural practices with, uh, with India and with a lot of, a lot of Indian communities. Um, and there's a lot of cross-border movement. Nepal still has an open border with India. So there's fluid movement amongst people of India and Nepal. So that is sort of perceived to be a uh, you know, national security risk for, for Nepal. 
And that stems from the fact that there was no, you know, formal border between Nepal and India before the British colonial power came in, in, in India. And, uh, they, and, 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 you know, even just despite the sort of the, the drawing of the border between Nepal and India and, and the, the Anglo-Nepal war that happened in, in the early 19th century that sort of demarcated the borders between India and Nepal, the movements, you know, continue. The open border still continues because the, the cultural similarities are so strong. And on the one hand, there's open border, there's cultural similarities, there's mixed marriages, there's cross-border movement. But on the same hand, the Madeshi communities by the mainstream, uh, you know, leaders and, and the law in general as well, you know, do not treat them as equal citizens or create these legal barriers and really kind of procedural barriers for the Madeshis to acquire Nepali citizenship um, and always use the pretext that, oh, these are already Indian citizens or these, they can always have access to Indian citizenship, resulting in a huge number of people being stateless. And what sort of what sort of problems does that bring them in their day to day life? Statistically, there are six point seven million people without citizenship certificates. Not meaning, which doesn't mean all of them are stateless, but a person without a citizenship certificate in Nepal cannot have access to basic education, health services, and not even a SIM card. Like movement, you know, movement is not there. No voting rights, obviously, but not even own. They can't even own a SIM card. So access to any sort of social service or state benefits is not possible. And which I guess uh, is evidenced by the fact that 84.5% of, of uh, Nepali labor force work in the informal sector, because there are quite a few people without citizenship certificates. It's a huge impact then. Joshua, can you talk us through some of the impacts from, from the example you gave uh, at the top of the podcast? You mentioned the Rohingya. I think a lot of people might be familiar, but for those who are not, please just tell us what sort of the impacts have we seen. May I first go back to the question, to the, I guess, the statement you made, Andy, about, you know, this belief that colonialism was a long time ago and it's passed, its impacts have passed. So just in a, in a macro picture, you need to, you need to, I guess, conceptualize colonialism as essentially a process of theft from Asian, African and Latin American lands by a culture that believed that it, it was superior. Of course, it wasn't just, uh, you, when I say European, you, you shouldn't just think it's it's Britain, France, Belgium, Italy, Spain, Portugal. The, the largest landmass in Asia is owned by a European country, and that's Russia. The, the extent to which the Russian empire spread all the way to Vladivostok, called Vladivostok because it means conqueror of the East, and all the indigenous peoples that fell, I mean, that's a history that's not very very well told. But essentially what it did is it created an extractive-based economy where you just dig stuff up and sell it. Then you generate a market at home and you create this entire process. Now, the reason that that's relevant in the context of colonization is because the continuing thought towards the environment that that has caused comes directly from that period. But just pause there. This isn't a blame game about what happened then. Actually, what happened is in the transition, those units effectively got privatized. They just got given to mates. They got given to majorities to run in the same way that they were run before. Those people who took over power actually went into the same palaces and used the same institutions and continued the same same model. So this idea that colonization is past, I mean, maybe there are different types of colonizers now. But that, that colonial experiment, the extractive industry, the legacy of the state, that's written in and it's giving us damage today. And 
turning to the Rohingya, I mean, effectively, that's a great example. You know, you, you literally found that the push towards excluding and marginalizing and trying to eliminate the Rohingya came from a simple call. And that simple call was to call them dirty, Muslim and foreign. I mean, think about this. Yes, Islam is foreign, if you want, to Myanmar because it came from the West. But the majority population is Buddhist. Buddhism came from the West too. It came from India. And the lines that were drawn on that map were drawn by the British. So the absurdity of using that kind of language to describe a community that lives in an area is crazy. And that's not even taking into account that migration has been a consistent pattern over time throughout history. And this idea that you will just decide, oh, no, from today onwards, anybody who crosses this threshold is foreign. We're not going to look back. And, and I think this is driven very much by the politics of, of the failure of imagination and this politics of absolute insecurity by a group of people who want to maintain hegemony over scarce resources and not even create that hegemony to generate economies that will benefit the vast majority of the population. It's essentially just to benefit a small oligarchy. And then the result is for many people, they become stateless because of this. And from what you're saying, it's it's a sort of arbitrary uh, process and they're left with, with nothing. I mean, what's your take on that, Subin? What's your reaction to what Joshua just said? Uh, the only thing I probably want to add there is like distinctions and similarities of, of colonization and the colonial legacy in Asia and other parts of the world, especially sub-Saharan Africa and, and North Africa and West Asia where it predominantly it was the colonial powers that Joshua alluded to, but the, the Soviet Union factor and, and the, Jap the Japan factor sort of has made it more different in, in the context of, of Asia. And because it's not just the Western powers trying to colonize uh, these countries, even the, uh, the Eastern powers as well, who were trying to stamp, clamp down their hegemony over, over these uh, countries sort of makes it a little more, more I guess, nuanced uh, in, in the context of, of Asia. And I think a really good example is, is obviously um, Indian subcontinent, but maybe Southeast Asia as well, where which hosts the, the largest number of, of stateless population um, in the world in, in terms of a sub-region. And uh, most of it has to do with not just the Western colonial powers, but also some of the Eastern colonial powers and, and the, the, the First and the Second World War as well. So the arbitrary drawing of borders being one thing, but also the different powers at play trying to sort of uh, establish that hegemony over the smaller states and, and then sort of uh, trying to propagate their own ideologies, their own identity, and creating these, these nationality laws. And, you know, interestingly, most of the countries in, in the sub-Saharan Africa region inherited the nationality laws from their colonial powers, but in, in, in the case of Asia, when the colonial powers, I mean, some countries did inherit their nationality laws, but in most of, uh, you know, the Asia Pacific region or most the Asia region where we have citizenship by, by descent or use sanguinis as opposed to use solid, which most of the, you know, colonial powers have, have, um, if there was a, a sort of a conscious or a deliberate attempt to, you know, reverse or, or, or sort of overturn the, the nationality laws. But the fact that the borders were drawn, not on the basis of, of ethnic lines or identity, or through identity lines, but because the, the borders or the lines sort of benefited the colonial powers, there was a sort of a mismatch between the nationality laws and how uh, the state was constructed. So which 
has sort of resulted in, in a huge number of stateless population in the South Asian and, and Southeast Asian region. South Asian probably more has to do with the British colonial rule, which I think you'll probably sort of ask more questions about, sort of movement of people during the colonial era as well. But Southeast Asia sort of more with the, the non-inheritance of citizenship laws and the arbitrary drawing of borders as well. Those colonial era laws, uh, which are still echoing down, down, down the years today, as you said, uh, Joshua. Um, do you have examples of those colonial era laws which are actually playing into statelessness? Well, I mean, the colonial era laws, in a sense, affect the entire system. So the entire determination of how the state is, what its dimensions are. You look at a constitution, one of the first things it does immediately after declaring who its identity is, that seems to be very much about trying to build an identity based on the inherited property that creates the state. So you try to come up with the statement about who you are. And that, that statement itself is determined by external people. Because you effectively, let's say you had a house and it had four rooms. So if you think about the four rooms, you think there's two rooms that belong to A and two rooms belong to B. And then those rooms were effectively divided by an external power. It was divided in a manner, gerrymandering we use the word, to maintain its hegemony on, that, on the resources that were there. So the entire state itself really is a direct legacy of, of the colonial power in most places, not every place, but in most places. And then the impact of colonialism also, a place like Fiji, for instance, there were lots of transported populations. So many populations were moved in as a consequence of colonialism. And then, of course, other communities that moved, if you look at West Africa, um, especially in the Sahel, these communities traversed boundaries regularly. A Sahrawi went from, from what is now, I guess, Western Sahara or Saharan Arab Democratic Republic into Morocco, into Mauritania, into Algeria. And then all of a sudden, the frame was changed. Lines were now drawn on the map. And you had to decide whether you were Moroccan or Algerian or whether you were Mauritanian. And what about the Sahrawi themselves? So it's the colonialism that has given us the frame through which many of the states then pursue their policies. And, and if you look at the, the Myanmar example I gave before and trace it further back, actually that part of Myanmar or Burma as it was, was part of British India. And it got, it got hived off really for administrative reasons. And a new administrative entity turned up. Now, I'm not saying that Myanmar is part of India any more than other parts of India might be part of India. But the creation of that entity itself was in the imagination of the people who actually went in there to capture it, to have a hegemony on what it could what it could exploit. Now, at no stage, at various points in Indian history, various other rulers too have taken control of large tracts of land. It's just their legacy isn't quite framed and nailed down in the way that statehood is. That's clear. Um, so we're talking about uh, lines being drawn on maps arbitrarily to set up states by colonial powers in the interests of their own uh, exploitation of mineral wealth and and then maintaining their own power. And, and another factor, as you mentioned, is the moving populations around within those borders as well, bringing people in colonial powers bringing in people from from outside to do certain jobs and then on independence they're being uh those people being kind of left in the middle left in the lurch as it were uh subin are those the two main uh kind of factors in your view when it comes to the impact of colonialism on statelessness this the first the drawing of the actual boundaries and then also the movement of, of populations around within those uh, artificially drawn boundaries I think in the Asian context, I think all the other factors could be sort of categorized. 
within these two main factors. The fact that uh, the, long, the lines were drawn arbitrarily led to, to sort of conflicts between countries, Vietnam, Cambodia being an example, uh, and that led to a lot of refugees and, and uh, people sort of being stateless as well. But if we go out of Asia, and if we sort of maybe look at certain sub-Saharan countries where, you know, they would probably didn't have national laws, but there were sort of certain societies and communities that had, had matrilineal forms of, of communities, but that was then sort of replaced by the more patriarchal or patrilineal uh, nationality laws. And, um, and, and to this date, uh, in, in some of those countries and, and mostly in, in the, uh, in the MENA region, um, those countries still have those, you know, gender discriminatory nationality laws, which was uh, introduced and then perpetuated by the colonial powers. So, um, but in the, in the case of Asia, I think that's less, less applicable because the, the laws were historically patriarchal. Um, but the, the discriminatory laws on the basis of religion and ethnicity, uh, largely has to do with how, um, you know, the local communities, uh, were treated during, by the colonial powers where some were afforded more privileges than the others. And when, uh, the countries became independent, um, there was a lot of sort of unrest and conflict between those communities and, and the, the powers that, uh, the, the, the communities that ended up retaining the power or getting more power, now, you know, designed the nationality laws to suit their ethnic groups or suit their communities. I think that sort of, I think is another layer to the colonial legacy. And, um, there are certain countries where, like, you know, where the colonial powers, uh, also crafted the, the nationality legislation even after they left. Um, so that, that was also, I, th- I guess, one of the reasons some of their continued the, the same discriminatory nationality legislations that were in uh, operation during the colonial, um, era as well. So I think those were some of the, some of the factors. Uh, where does this leave the stateless people then who are the victims of, of, of all of this then? I mean, if there's a kind of a view that colonialism in some ways does have this feeling of being in the distant past and you know Joshua you explained very clearly how that impact is is very much uh, of today but uh, where does it leave the people who are then uh, the victims of all of this well it leaves them with no access to rights i think that's the key and that that's where the citizenship is the is the, the right of rights so to speak that if you essentially are not recognized by the state as existing then everything else that exists in the state is unavailable you know, and human rights was meant to be available to all, but it's like setting up a banquet, put laying on a feast there and then not letting people enter it, depending on who they are. So so that's what the, the main, the, the reason that statelessness is such an egregious violation is that it puts individuals beyond the reach of any rights. It puts individuals beyond the reach of any remedy. But I think in a sense, you know, this all sounds like it, it's hopeless and it all sounds like it's, it's, very, it's very difficult. It is very difficult. But I really do believe that the power of ideas now and the call from societies for the kind of change we want to see is a real opportunity. And we have to be, we have to be focusing much more on empathy and less on pity. Because there has been a little bit, oh, you know, these people are stateless. Why don't we throw them a, a few loaves of bread and today they will feed themselves? And it's much more about changing systems and accepting and recognizing how deeply implicated the system is, whether it's colonial or not. To me, it's less relevant whether the system is colonial or not. For me, the big question is, can the system that we have address the three big questions the way I see it? First question is, what is our emergency response to climate change? 
urgent, urgent, urgent answers required. Second, what is the way in which we can tackle um, migration? Mass scale migration has occurred. How do we tackle that? And the third question is, what do we do about growing inequality in states? Because actually what we are seeing is these are interlinked. Migration happens because of scarcity. Scarcity happens because of exploitation of resources by a wealthy few. And in a sense, the state in this is just a frame in which this is taking place. And I, I really do think that people have begun to wake up to the fact in every country that they are being regularly fooled into voting for options in democracies that effectively are just there in a modern sense in a way that a colonial power would be there. It's no longer about Britain colonizing India. It's about a group of elite people in Britain colonizing the rest of Britain. And I think that's the key that's replaying in every single theater we see now. And the way in which we have to contend with it is to call on the vast majority of people who don't want to see this kind of, dare I say it, rat race that is benefiting a few rats and to actually get into a wider society by which you get a, 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 a slightly greater certainty in dealing with the world's uncertainties. Subin, what's your response to that? We can still see the the, the remnants of colonialism, uh, not just in the laws of, of uh, so many countries, but also the way statelessness is uh, is being advocated or uh, the attempts made by different organizations, including UNHCR and others, to address statelessness, which is extremely um, just hasn't been decolonized yet, where the focus is on ratification of treaties, uh, the statelessness conventions and other related conventions, where, I mean, if you look at Asia, there's very little, very, very low ratification because of the, the I guess, the anti-colonial sentiment. Uh, so, you know, that also needs to change. Status of this discourse just needs to be more decolonized, where there's more power to the status activists or status persons in determining how the status needs to be addressed um, and not be sort of at the hands of more powerful organizations. So I guess in a way, the status persons at this stage, um, in their efforts to becoming or belonging and, and sort of becoming citizens and being part of the global citizenry, that they're still sort of looking for space. They're still looking for space that is occupied by uh, people who are not stateless, people like me, I guess, who have nationality documents, but are representing the stateless voices probably in a podcast like this. Um, so for me to, be, I guess, create more spaces to pass the mic and allow uh, stateless persons to voice their, their concerns. Uh, one particular learning that I've uh, garnered in the last few years is it's not always about citizenship. It's not always about nationality. It is about identity. It is about culture. It is about preserving who they are. The Rohingyas, for example, are not all of them. Uh, their a lot, all of their priorities is, is to you know attain a citizenship of a country where they are uh, you know seeking refuge. But it is also about preserving the identity that is getting getting lost, and you know sense of them the the, the fact that their sense of being the sense of who they are is, is slowly uh, going away. That's also really, really important. That's never going to come from people like me or people or other organizations that are working on this issue who are, who are not sort of led by stateless persons. Because for us, it is about, oh, citizenship, uh, treaty ratification, or this number of people acquired citizenship documents, or this uh, particular discriminatory law was reformed, or this particular stateless determination procedure was established. But it is, it is, there's just more to that. And, and based on my experience, 
you know, interacting and working with status activists. It's not just, it's not about the things that I just mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's more than that. Are there any success stories of, of countries that have become independent and have dealt with the colonial legacy in a way which is inclusive and, you know, we can look to as, as, as examples for, for other regions, other countries? Joshua? Well, the one that we are most familiar with at Minority Rights Group International is the Marigoli in Uganda, uh, which is a classic example. This is a population that has lived in Uganda prior to colonization. But when the Ugandan state was born, the way in which the constitution was written effectively wrote them out of it. And there was a long struggle that then uh, took place, which we, we uh, engaged with, with the community. And in the end, it was a pragmatic answer and it was actually a solution. You'd think that Uganda is not a state which is a democracy and you'd think that, you know, that would be a problem. But actually the engagement with local authorities showing the fact that these are communities that are as Ugandan as anybody else made a difference. And I think that is the kind of argument we want to have. That's the kind of conversation. Perhaps argument is exactly the wrong word here, that it's a conversation you want to be having with state authorities to be able to say, Look, ultimately, nationality is not a gift. It's a guarantee. It's not up to you whether you would like to give this person nationality. It is a guarantee of their and a recognition of the fact that they are legitimate where they are. And this idea of illegal immigration, so-called illegal immigration that's pushed a lot is a classic example. Nobody is illeg illegal anywhere. It doesn't work like that. Essentially, human beings have lived in various parts of the planet, they have moved to various parts of the planet. They are where they are. And that, that is a, a nationality has to be a recognition of where people are, not whether you think they ought to be there. That's not a choice you are given. And so I think that is the, that, that's the kind of conversation that needs to be had pretty much everywhere. But that requires to be able to have that conversation. Once again, you have to call on the empathy of one individual towards another individual, whether they share your religion, gender, caste, eating habits, football team, all irrelevant. It's just a question that nationality has to be a guarantee and it's not a gift. And it certainly is not the gift of the government of the day, which is going to change. So you can't decide in posterity who belongs or who doesn't belong because you're just temporarily in charge. Your day will come when you will not be in charge anymore. And you don't want to create a precedent whereby the new people in charge can then strip you of your nationality. So there has to be a pragmatism and an empathy. And I think that when we have when you have these conversations, certainly our example with, with Uganda was very much based on that kind of pragmatism and empathy. And you result in, in a simple decision, a simple administrative decision that all of a sudden brings people back into the fold and gives them the access to all of the progress we are making collectively as human beings. But that empathy, though, I mean, if you look at what's happening in the world at the moment, it seems that empathy and, and an increase in empathy is is a long way off. You know, it would, it's, it's easy to become cynical and pessimistic. Uh, and what do you what do you say to that? Well, let me challenge you on that. And I think it's your right to a certain extent that when you look at the world's news, you get the idea that empathy is off the agenda. And actually what you have is greed and individuality. But I'd, I'd, I'd basically encourage you to look beyond that to what's happening, because we do know the extent to which the world's media has been captured by certain vested interests who want to put out this, oh, it's all broken narrative. Because when you put out the, oh, oh it's all broken narrative, and you make people feel helpless, they essentially disengage. And if we disengage, we give them a clear run. And we see this example playing out in many countries. And actually, the 
you know, the COVID story has shown us that actually it's empathy from one individual to another, often driven by women and frontline workers. That's what got us out of the pandemic, that actually people reaching across borders, trying to help other people. I don't mean borders that are national borders. I mean across their own borders about who belongs and who doesn't belong to their communities. That's what kept us going. And certainly when you talk to the world's movements, you look at the, the youth movement, you look at the women's movement, you look at the climate movement, there is a thirst there and there's a reaching out there. But there is also the counter narrative of people who are trying to dismiss these as, you know, somehow anti-progress or you, you get other kinds of movements like the incel and, the, you know, this Andrew whatever his name is, Tate or whoever it is, that these kinds of hate and misogynistic movements as well as a counter. But actually, the people who want progress are far, far, far greater in number than the people who don't want progress. It's just that it is really in the interests of some very, very Twitter is a good example, you know, or Facebook, Meta, good example. There is a, a, a narrative there where bad news sells and scandalous news sells even more. So you want people to be making outrageous statements because those outrageous statements can then go and have shock and horror value. So we need to challenge that. And I think we need to call on people to look at a wider source and not be distracted by the mainstream media that's being shoveled at them from various different angles and to look beyond at the stories that are taking place in communities where empathy is the driving feature of much progress that's happening. And Subin, is there uh, something which you uh, look uh, at as some, as being successful in mitigating these problems or improving things and, and making people's um, lives easier? I really don't think I have an example similar to what Joshua shared, um, but I can definitely think of some countries that are definitely on the right track. And when I, when I say they're on the right track, there's still a lot of issues that need to be resolved and a lot of problematic um, laws and policies and practices that need to be sort of uh, addressed. But, um, you know, Central Asia, because w after the Cold War, uh, they had to sort of come up with their own uh, nationality laws. And there were a lot of uh, issues of statelessness that, that began, but Uzbekistan probably being one example where there have been concerted efforts by um, the, the, the state machinery to address the statelessness issue, which is, again, uh, the civil society organizations in, in Uzbekistan sort of led by affected persons and stateless persons playing a key role in, in sort of working with the government and, and UNHCR and, and other organizations in sort of addressing statelessness is probably one example. I think Philippines has, has made a few, made a lot of progress, uh, in the last few years, but that's more to do with creating a, a really good image in, in the global sphere, but also understanding the the benefits of, of addressing statelessness, the economic and the social uh, benefits of addressing statelessness, uh, not exactly addressing the colonial legacies or colonial remnants, but in a way on the right track to addressing statelessness. But having said that, all, all these countries and there are a few more, uh, there's still a long way from from actually addressing the colonial legacies or decolonizing their nationality laws or addressing the root cause of, of statelessness. But again, sort of really want to, I wanted to add something to what Joshua shared about empathy as well and really agree with, with Joshua where I think mainstream media does not reflect, uh, what is actually going on in the, in the, in the world. And, um, especially in this particular sector on statelessness, when really we're very close to the status activists, there is a lot of empathy, uh, because of the shared 
trauma because of the shared lived experience of being stateless. There's a lot of empathy between the groups and with other organizations or individuals who, who have been very supportive of their work or, or the allies have always, um, you know, provided a lot of support to the work that they've been doing. So that's, um, I think that there's, at least in this particular field, there's, uh, I think growing empathy. And then I think a lot of, a lot of inspiration to draw from, for, for someone like me, from the amazing activists, um, in, in Nepal, in Malaysia, in Bangladesh. So, yeah, I think I've been very fortunate to, to benefit from that empathy as well. Just let me ask you then, Subin, for a final thought to close off uh, the podcast today. Um, you just mentioned some some things which are important uh, when it comes to sort of looking forward and, and improving things. But what's the final thought you'd like to leave the listeners with uh, today, just to close off the podcast? Um, yeah, I always I always sort of come off as a an idealist, as an idealist and, and do not and don't have like practical um, thoughts or, or solutions to addressing statelessness most times. But I still feel uh, decolonizing um, the statelessness discourse is really important, not just in terms of academia, but also in terms of how we try to address statelessness. And, and this is where I think addressing the colonial remnants in terms of nationality laws and its impact. When I say colonial remnants, not, not just limit to how the national, nationality laws were crafted and implemented and after colon, uh, colonization ended but also how the institutions were set up during colonial era and they and how they continue to function uh, after independence as well so i think that's that's super important in terms of how institutions are, are built and how institutions can be rebuilt or can be deconstructed um and i think that's that's really really important because like i said artificial drawing of borders extremely different history multilingual multi-ethnic identities living in the same country and we're expecting to have a uniform citizenship law um and you know with, with all the power imbalances in this in the country because of the colonial uh rule so uh, i think all of them sort of has to be looked taken into consideration and one way to do it is to give more power to these stateless persons and state affected persons to determine what they would want to see and it's not just about, I think, like I said earlier, not just about legal reform, not just about acquiring nationality. It's, it's way more than that. It is about preserving identity. It is about equal rights. It is about uh, reducing the power differentials and power imbalances between several communities that, uh, that is sort of uh, leading to, to sort of statelessness. Thanks. And Joshua, what's your final thought to, to finish off today? Yeah, maybe maybe three points, if I may. I mean, first of all, restrict the power that governments think they have. Governments do not have the power to decide who belongs, who doesn't. They are at best in power for a short period of time. Their time will come, they will pass. So it's not a government's prerogative to decide who gets nationality and who doesn't. It's not about giving ice cream on a hot day. This is something that's, that essentially is, is a legacy that has to be recognized. Secondly, I would say building that empathy. We need human beings to connect with each other. We need to connect better with the youth movement. The youth movement needs to connect better with the Women's movement, the women's movement needs to connect better with the climate movement. And we need to then make sure that all of these little segmented, segregated bits of society come together to make their weight known in democracies and in other places. And in where there's no democracy to force a change towards a more inclusive society. But the third, and this is something that we at MRG do 
in our work, and we're also trying to work with the United Nations to do much more of this, is to look at the globe as consisting of 17 regions and not to think of this nonsense of five continents. This five continental nonsense we have all been taught puts Japan and Jordan in Asia when the only thing they have in common is that the fact that they start with a J. You know, effectively, this, this masks a lot of the problems. 60% of the world's population is in Asia. It's no point thinking about Asia as a continent. So we work with 17 world's regions, of which essentially the polar regions, the, the North and South Pole, is uninhabited largely. But the 16 world's regions, ultimately, it makes far more sense to think of analysis on that basis, to think about migration issues on that basis, to think about combating inequality on that basis, and the big one solving climate change, mitigating climate change. The government of Pakistan can do nothing about flooding. It's actually the South Asian region that needs to come together to address flooding in Pakistan. So we are really trying to promote this. And I think in promoting this, all of a sudden, it's a game changer. Because then you don't have a tiny minority of, of, of Rohingya in, in Myanmar. What you have is a community that's another community in Southeast Asia, of which the Rohingya is part, the, the Myanmar is part, but so too are Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, Malaysia. So it changes the game a little bit. So I would say those three things. One, challenge governments in what they think they can do. They can't invade another country, but they can't also decide who gets nationality and who doesn't. Secondly, build the empathy towards a progressive future that's equal for all. And thirdly, let's, when we think about the globe, not be restricted by the education that we got, which still was extremely colonial in how it framed the globe for us. Thank you both very much for joining the conversation today. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. You've been listening to the Statelessness and Exclusion Dialogues podcast, brought to you by the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion. The series examines different themes impacting statelessness, including the history of colonialism, patriarchy, state formation, xenophobia and racism, and digital ID and documentation. Today we were talking about colonialism and its impact on statelessness. Our thanks go to our guests, Joshua Castellino and Subin Mulmi. If you'd like to know more about the work of the Institute on Statelessness and Inclusion, then visit the website institutesi.org. That's institutesi.org. I'm Andy Clark. Thanks for listening.